Welcome to the show. My guest today is Stevie Rochelle. Stevie is involved in many projects. Uh, first and foremost, he is the singer and frontman for the band Tough, and their debut record, What Comes Around Goes Around, is now being re-released. And uh, he also sings for the bands Shameless and Tales from the Porn. And besides singing, he also has run the rock music website Metal Sludge since 1998. And uh, I'm a big fan of all this stuff, especially Metal Sludge. And Metal Sludge has even done some stories for us before, so it's very cool to have Stevie on the show. He's been an insider in the scene and has some great stories to tell. He's going to talk about the tough early days, making the first record, his uh, Cheeseheads with Attitude side project thing that he has, why he started Metal Sludge and the person that kind of prompted that, his feud with Mitch LaFawn, and much, much more. So check it out. Welcome, Stevie Rochelle, to the Chuck Shoe Podcast. Finally, after like two years of asking, you finally gave in and decided to do it. Have you been asking that long? I don't know. It's, it was, it's been a while, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I didn't really have anything to um, promote. Talk about, you know, but well, now I got something to talk about. So. Yeah. So tell me what's going on right now before we dig into the rest of the old stuff. Well, uh, this is uh, this is big news for us, or at least for me and the and the guys. And uh, I did a deal with Rhino Entertainment and Warner Music Group, where I signed a licensing deal to reissue our Atlantic Records debut. And tomorrow is essentially the 30th anniversary since What Comes Around Goes Around came out. It's long been discontinued and out of print. Uh, very hard to find, or if you can, like. People are buying CDs on eBay for 40, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. Vinyl is even harder. It was only released on vinyl in Europe. So if you're lucky to find one, it's 100, 150, 175 bucks. And um, long story short, I've been doing some digging and searching and poking and prodding for a couple of years now. And I finally uh, got in touch with the people I needed to. And I, um, I signed a licensing deal. So RLS Records, my indie label, is reissuing what comes around, goes around. And uh, it's already been remastered. Graphics are being um, extended, so to speak. So the booklet uh, and the CD, full deluxe booklet, 16 pages, lyrics, images from the merry-go-round shoot that everybody's everybody's so familiar with. You know? Nice. Yeah. The glare there, you know, um, this is the vinyl. Obviously, this is the CD. Yeah, because um, it's like I was telling you, like in Seattle, I don't think I could find that CD. Like I always read about you guys in Metal Edge, but I, I could never find your music. I was always like, oh, where? Like not even I feel like not even the used CD stores would have would have it. But I always would read about it. I remember like the Fist First or Religious Fix. I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. Like I, I want to hear that, but I don't know how to listen well, to it. Later. Fist, yeah, that Fist was later. Yeah. Season. Yeah, but even the first, first CD, I don't before. think I could find that one. So that's cool that it's finally coming back now. And okay. so is that um, – what about with Spotify and streaming and stuff? Are you still getting a cut of that though, right? Well, you know, digital is a whole different animal. Mm. You know, um, Right now, if you go on to Spotify and you search for what comes around, goes around digitally, it's available through Rhino Warner. Mm. Oddly – when, when this was all being done and we were actually, they, you know, I was communicating with the Warner libraries and they forwarded us audio files and then we remastered it, which it sounds great. I don't know. Did I send you the link yet or not? I, I no. Should have sent you. Um, 
I'll send you a link so you can download it and listen to it. Um, it sounds great, but something that my my mastering guy pointed out to me, Rhino Warner Wea, which has actually issued the digital and it's been out for about a decade now, they spelled the name wrong. It's, really? The, well, the name of the record is What Comes Around Goes Around. They have it as What Goes Around Comes Around. Now, That's the old saying that a lot of people use is What Goes Around Comes Around. We switched it. Okay. So if you search it right now, it's it's misspelled. That's hilarious. Wow. Yeah. So they, and, and I never noticed it. Neither did anyone else in all the years it's been available. That's funny. So, and the only way to get a CD is people that are basically selling a used copy. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of copies that I've even bought at some points online, repackaged and resold to, to, to fans that wanted them and wanted to get, you know, the singer to sign it or, and then I'd put it with a t-shirt and some other, what comes around, goes around related items. But, you know, the, the, the thing that's crazy is when, when this record came out, it was in 91 and six months, you know, four or five, six months later, we're on MTV in the fall and we're, we're, we're on rotation. Uh, Guns and Roses, number one, Metallica, number two, tough number three, and then the rest was, you know, Bon Jovi and Slaughter and Skid Row and Poison and and um, Warrant and all those bands. But in the last week of August, early September, I believe it was, Nirvana was released. Now, at this point, as everybody, everybody knows what happened. Mm-hmm. But Pearl Jam had already been out for a while. Alice in Chains had been out for, God, even longer. Because I want to say Alice in Chains record came out in early 90. Yeah. And they were touring with Van Halen. So there was already some Seattle stuff that was happening. But the Nirvana record was, was the game changer. Because it, it got released. It sold a lot of records. The video got on MTV. And within months, Nirvana became this juggernaut, so to speak. And then everyone else just kind of followed suit with it. And of course, Soundgarden, I think it already put out an EP and a record or whatever, but it was really Nirvana that, that pushed everything to the next level. So, so was it that, like an overnight for you then? Was it where you guys were a hot band and then not so hot? Pretty much. I mean, you know, in looking back, it didn't seem like it was happening that, I mean, it was happening quickly, but it's not like, you know, we were playing on Friday and everything was fine. And on Monday it was over. But in some ways that did happen because we were on tour in a tour bus in the fall of 1991 selling records were in every magazine. Is this with Lita Ford? Matter. Was this, was this when you're on tour with Lita Ford? Yeah. Well, we did some of the, we did a run with by ourselves. We did like eight weeks of dates by ourselves, and we were home for two weeks. Then we did another four five, six weeks with Lita Ford and across, and across the, uh, throughout that year, we did a show with Dawkin or Don Dockin, a show with Aldo Nova, a show with, uh, you know, Bullet Boys, you know, just a lot of one-offs with guys um, oh. or bands like us, you know, Sweet F.A., um, all different dangerous toys. Um, but we never, we never, you know, secured ourselves a, a big major tour. We were, we're not, we weren't on an arena run, so to speak. But, you know, the thing is we were on, on tour in a tour bus. And I remember our manager called us and just said, Atlantic is pulling the tour support. So we can't afford the bus anymore. You guys are going to have to go in the van. And we had a couple of days notice, like less than a week, a few days. And I remember we were in Boston and the night we got done with the show, they said, Hey, you guys got to take everything out of the bus because the guy's leaving after the show tonight, the bus is going off somewhere else. 
And tomorrow morning, there's going to be a rider truck here for the equipment. Um, or or the, no, the bus was going to go the next morning. So we had to have the rider truck the next morning to take all the equipment from under under the bays that are in, you know under the bus, put it in the truck, and then we got in a van. So wow. like literally that happened where we got a phone call and just said, you know, you, you can't afford the bus anymore. Now you're in a van. But again, you know, we all saw it happening. But, you know, in looking back, I don't think anybody realized how significant of a change that was. And I don't think anybody realized. And when I say anybody, I mean, all of us, the slaughters, the warrants, the skid rows, everybody, everybody was at some point also saying to themselves, well, we're not as glam as them anymore. You know, we're not wearing makeup anymore. You know, we don't have our hair sprayed up anymore. Everybody at some point looked pretty hokey pokey, you know? Yeah, no, I saw some pictures like last night because you guys actually started before you, you know, started touring and stuff. You actually started in, well, you joined the band 87, right? Correct. Yeah. And so like you guys were on the Sunset Strip for like a few years before you got signed and all that. So, and it's funny cause I was, I was, uh, you know, I always thought, yeah, you, you did look like Brett Michaels, but you said like you, the timing, you went down to LA around 87, like before poison had broke. So when people saw poison on TV, people from your hometown thought it was you. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. What happened is I, I'm living in Wisconsin. Um, Filtering back, let's say 84. So it's my high school, my senior year in high school, 1984. I'm, I'm a senior in high school. I'm 17, you know, fall of 83, fully uh, into skateboarding, new wave music. I'm listening to like Billy Idol, Devo, the B-52s. Yeah, I, I was going to uh, ask you about that, about the skateboarding real quick. How did you skateboard in Wisconsin? Because isn't there snow on the ground six months of the year? Yeah, there is. And, and, and myself and my friends who I skated with, there was a couple of kids on our block, me, Kurt Hahnemann and Billy Zabel. We lived like on the same block and all of our parents loved us because when we were 12 and 13 and 14 years old, how many kids parents come up and knock on their bedroom, bedroom door at, you know, seven in the morning and say, Steven, go shovel the driveway. No, damn it. I don't want to shovel the driveway. It's cold out. We, we shoveled our drivers driveways religiously and swept them and chipped off the ice. So we had places to skate oh. and we built quarter pipe ramps in the driveway. So we skate up the, the ramp and back. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not conducive to the sport, <laughs> but so you I made it work. Skateboarder. But I was obsessed with it since I was really little, since yeah. the seventies, like mid seventies, I started riding on a skateboard on my block on like a little plastic huffy. 1976, hmm. 10, 10, 11 years old, because by 1978, I had already started to become obsessed with it to the point where I would go to the, the sports shops or the, the, the stores where they would have a skateboard magazine, just like there was Metal Edge and Hitler, yeah. there was for skateboarding as well. So that was my first love that I was really into skateboarding and buying the magazines and and just getting better and better and better and progressing and learning about skating through magazines and seeing, wow, they're doing all this in California. And so my fantasy as a kid was to go to California to skateboard. That's fun. That's like the same story as uh, Tony Harnell from TNT. He was a big skateboarding kid. He too. was a skater as well. Yeah. Correct. Him and I have actually talked about our, our history of skating in the past. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we yeah. didn't know each other back then, but we, we kind of know, we, you know, we, we shared our, our little bit of history. Right. So as a, as a, Pre-teen, I was obsessed with skateboarding. Then into my teens, 
you know, 1314, which is what, 79, 1980. I'm completely obsessed with skateboarding. Now at this point, the, 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 the level we upped it to were my buddy built a half pipe in his backyard, you know, one of those big wooden U-shaped ramps so you could skate from one side to the next. And so we were, we were completely into that. And a lot of the music that I was surrounded by was basically brought to my attention through skateboarding. So when you went to somebody's house and they'd be skating in the ramp, somebody would have a, a boom box or a CD, you know, or cassette player, and they'd be playing Black Flag or JFA or Devo or Sex Pistols or the Clash, Clash or whatever. Yeah. So I would hear all that and go, oh, that's cool. I want to buy that, you know, just by association, monkey see, monkey do. So I started buying and, and listening to all New Wave and Punk. And then it was my senior year in high school, 83. All my friends were really, not all my friends, but a group of friends were really getting into Def Leppard, uh, Loverboy, Rush, and Ozzy was coming in concert. So now it's just yeah. past New Year's Eve. It's January, uh, January of 84. And um, everybody was talking about Ozzy's coming in concert, which I didn't really know anything about him. And the only thing I really knew is that he ate bats. Right. You know, because of the big press thing that happened when he bit the head off the bat. Sure. So when my friends were going to go to that, I was like, okay, I'm interested. So I, we bought a ticket. It was like $11. But if you paid $12, if you paid an extra dollar, you could ride on the bus to the arena. Oh, okay. Which the arena where this was happening was in Madison. So that's like, not not a hundred miles, but pretty close, like 60, 70, 80 miles from my house. And um, and then right before that concert, Kiss came to Green Bay, which was the Lick It Up tour with Vandenberg and Heaven was the opener. Um Vandenberg was from Sweden or Finland, I'm pretty sure. Uh I don't know where Heaven was from. I want to say they were maybe from like some, somewhere in Europe as well. Uh, I could be wrong though. So anyways, my first concert, my first real rock concert was the Kiss Lick It Up tour. And then two weeks later was the Aussie show. So I went to the Aussie show and Motley Crue was the opener. Yeah. So the Shout of the Devil tour. And so watching that completely changed my life because seeing that I went home and I was obsessed. I want to be a singer. I'm going to join a band. I want to get a record deal. I want to be on stage like that. I want to go on tour. And that was the change. And that was March, March 8th of 84. And I turned 18 on March 2nd. So mm. turned 18, a couple of days later, saw Motley Crue and they ruined my life. And then you moved to LA to not to join tough, but just to audition, right? You hadn't actually Correct. gotten the job yet. Correct. So what happened after, after I saw Motley Crue, I became obsessed with them started buying every magazine, um, had never heard of any of these bands previously, knew nothing about them, nothing. I didn't know about, I barely knew about Van Halen. Like I'd heard the name Van Halen, but I didn't know anything about them really. Um, except for the guitarist had like the stripes on his guitar or something, you know, just like, I mean, because that was, that was a big deal. Like it was a big deal when Ozzy ate a bat or something, mm -hmm. you know? So I only heard of what was like really mainstream uh, in the way of 
I probably heard like you really got me or something on mm -hmm. the radio, but never really paid attention because I was more obsessed with skateboarding and new wave. Um, so now when I decide I want to be a singer, a group of friends from school, there's a guy that's a drummer or different guys, a guitarist, you know, the guy that I used to see in the Iron Maiden shirt who was always in the smoking area, who I never really cared to talk to because I was a jock. I was into all sports. Now I'm like, dude, you're a drummer. Really? Uh, you guys want to jam? You know? So then it was like this guy with a drum set and this guy had a bass and this guy was a guitarist and, and all these guys started getting together and jamming and I'd hear about it and they would say, Hey, there's going to be a jam session at so-and-so's house in the basement on Saturday. And so we'd go. And every time I went, it was like a couple of guys that wanted to play drums and there'd be two or three guys with guitars and somebody would come in with a flying V or, you know, somebody had a, you know, a Marshall cabinet and everybody was just doing their part, but there was really no singer. Um, and so everybody would just start jamming anything from like limelight by rush and crazy train by Ozzy and all just different metal songs. Um, and at some point nobody was singing. So I was kind of like by default going, well, like, Hey, I kind of know part of that. Like they were playing White Wedding by Billy Idol. And I was like, oh, I, I know that, you know, it's a nice day for a white wedding, you know, into a microphone, you know, that was plugged into like some speaker in the corner of the garage. And a couple of the girls there all squealed and everybody looked at me and Steve, you're the guy, you're the singer, Steve. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I'm the singer, you know, like no one else is the singer. So I'm the singer. There you, you know? go. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted anyways, even though I had never sang before. And so then as that happened, you know, a band kind of started coming together and, you know, this guy's going to play and this guy's not, and this guy's quitting and this guy's not cool enough looking and he's got an Afro, so he won't work. And, you know, of course, at that point, we're all young and somebody shows up with a, a leather jacket with some patches on it. And you're like, dude, that's cool. Where did you get that? You know, like you're impressed with somebody that has the new flying V that they bought at the music store or something. And uh, so then I just started going through the motions, you know, and we started playing cover songs and jamming originals. And then we're like, found a teen center that we could play at, went down, talked to the guy. And um, I remember I went to this place called the AV rec center in in Oshkosh, where I'm from, it's a little arcade where teenage kids could go during the day and play games and screw around. And it was a Black Flag concert there just like a couple of weeks earlier. And they, they were talking about how many people were there. And Henry Rollins lost his shoes and they had him on the bar and they were all proud. And and I was like, hey, I want to I want to play here with my band. So the guy made us a deal and said, you can sell tickets and keep three bucks for each one of them. So we hmm. printed up these little blue tickets and this was the band Exciter. Yeah. And we basically started selling tickets for like, you know, three bucks to people. And then that day came and we loaded in all our amps and some backdrop stuff and some flash pots and got our stage close together and went down there and screamed and yelled for a few hours, you know, and that became addictive. And so you know, we were playing teen centers because most of us were pretty much underage. Um, and at that time in Wisconsin, uh, they had a, a Wisconsin was the one of the last states to have uh, the drinking age raised to 21. 
1984 and 85, if you were 18, you could go drink. Hmm. 86 is when they passed the law. And if you look in the books, the, 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 the law was that on June 30th, it changed federally across the entire United States. You hmm. had to be 21 years of age before June 30th of 1986 to go drink. Um, or you had to be 18 before June 30th in Wisconsin to drink. But then they changed it so you had to be of age across, you know, across the whole United States. You had to be 21 starting on that date. So those kids that we grew up with that if you turned 18 on, say, June 26th or 28th, you could go to the bars going forward. But if you didn't turn 18 until after June 30th, on July 1st or 9th or 13th, you then had to wait three more years. Oh, God, what a nightmare. Yeah. And so for Wisconsin, which is a big drinking state and yeah. you know, college towns, and there was a lot of kids that were born you know, earlier than others who could go to the bars legally with their ID, even though they were 18 or 19 years old, when they changed it to 21. And so for that two-year, three-year period until it, it, it got, they call it grandfathered in, by, you know, a few years later, then it was, it's 21 across the board. Right. So, and our band was like our drummer, Jim, Jim, one of the drummers we used was like 16, Tony, a different drummer was 15 or 16. I was 18 or 19. Um, everybody was young, you know? Um, then we started playing bars and cover songs, but within a couple of years, I, I felt like I was outgrowing it. Yeah. And wanted sure. to move. Because everybody that was cool that I read about that was coming out of uh, that was that was in the magazines was coming out of Hollywood. Sure. And not just Motley Crue and Rat, but you know Black and Blue and Keel and Armored Saint and and then you know Poison came out in '86 and they were very much a Motley Crue Rat Van Halenish band, which obviously made a big a big uh, impact. Yeah. So then you get down there and so talk about playing. It seems like it's such a cool scene and the sunset strip in the eighties. Like you're, you're, you're playing with Angora, which is a John Karabi's band at the time and uh warrant. And there, there was some band with uh, Johnny Martin who was like future LA guns. Like all these people, Jeremy Popoff was in razzle who, you know, he's later in lit and all these right. kinds of people. Like it's just such a incestuous, like kind of family almost. Right. Yeah. Johnny Martin was in a band called Mon Cherie spelled M O N hyphen C-H-E-R-I. And the second or third gig I played with Tuff was at the Troubadour, and it was three bands. Tuff was the first slot. Um, I forget if maybe Mon Cherie was second and then somebody else headlined. Mm. But um, so, yeah, I've known Johnny since way back. I I don't remember if I played. We might have played with Angora, but the, the thing that you probably read about, the first show that I ever went to or went to maybe that's Hollywood what, yeah. was Angora. Yeah. Like I got here on a Thursday, June 27th or something. And the very next day, some friends of mine in the, in the building took me to, uh, took me to a show, which ended up being Angora. And then the first show you opened, uh, or the, yeah, the first show that you played in there was, uh, opening for Warren and like, but they weren't that big at the, you didn't know who they were. Well, they, they were definitely big, but I didn't know who they were Yeah, because I, I was living in Wisconsin. Sure. And so I, I, I moved to town. They weren't national yet. I, tra yeah, I tracked down tough, get an audition. Um, and at that point, you know, as, as we look back 30 some years ago, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. 
So when we found out about stuff, news per se, about what's happening in the industry, when when Van like here's a good example. When Van Halen broke up, that that news didn't get out for a long time because it was like at that point, magazines and print media is usually there's a 60 to 90 day lead. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times that's why when you'd buy a magazine back in the day, you'd see like you might see the holiday issue come out in in, in October for like, you know, Christmas issue. Hmm. But really all the stuff that they had printed and was released in October was actually interviewed and scripted and, and edited and sent to the press in like July or August, you know, cause they have to stuff's got to be turned around and printed and then distributed. And there's always a delay. So like today, if something happens, you know, it's on TMZ in a couple hours mm -hmm. or metal sludge, metal sludge. You know? yeah, right. So, um, yeah. So what was happening on the strip? I just remember when I was in Wisconsin, the last year or so, like 86 into early 87, the last year or so, I had already met a few people that had come out to Hollywood. Met, I knew a couple of girls that had been here. Um, a couple of guys in bands that knew a friend who was like, oh, my friend lived in LA for a month or two. And I remember hearing about Guns N' Roses, mm. like in like mid, late 86. And everyone's saying there's this really hot band. And, you know, so I would hear little bits and pieces, but I didn't know about everybody. I didn't know about everything. And even back then to call from, from LA to Wisconsin is, is a long distance phone call, mm. you know? So to make a phone call and talk on the phone with a relative is, is money, which at that age, most people don't have. So right. a lot of times, you know, the information was like everything that was happening there on Sunset Strip, it wasn't privy information to the rest of the world, unless you, you know, came into LA and, got some rock city news zines or bam magazines and took them home with you and then shared them with your friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're just clubbing and playing, chugging along. And then um, you finally get signed. It was the summer of 90, right? Correct. And then, um, yeah. So the debut, which again, this is now out. Uh, this is cool, but this was actually, was this one produced by Howard Benson? Correct. Yeah. So talk about how he was like taught you how to be, I thought it was interesting that, when he was uh, tell you how to be descriptive with lyrics, like instead of saying fast car, he would say, say candy apple, red Camaro. Cause now you can picture it and you know, right. it's fast cause it's a red Camaro. So he right. kind of helped you how to like write, tell you how to write lyrics. Yeah. You know, it was, it was interesting, you know, to, to, to record a demo, to record a professional demo, which we did a couple times with me. The first time we did a demo was the spring of 88 with Jesse Harms. Jesse Harms was the keyboard player in Sammy Hagar's band. Oh. Who also went on to play with uh, David Lee Roth. So Jesse produced our first demo, which we did at Sound City, the famous studios that Nirvana did their record at and Fleetwood Mac and Rat. And obviously Dave Grohl did that, that documentary. Yeah, show. that's cool. So we did. We did our first real demo with me there in the spring of uh, March of 88. And um, matter of fact, you have it, you have a copy of it. You went to go get it. Hang on a second. And hopefully you're coming back because it's not good to have dead air on the podcast. <laughs> but I like this. Uh, you got some cool posters on the back with the, the tough, CD and the, some sort of article on I Billboard. I had the real somewhere. Hang oh, on. that would be cool. Oh, my, 
Let me put my glasses on for a second. Okay. Find the uh, actual real. Trying to leave everybody hanging. That stuff is that stuff like you could sell. What are you could sell that for on eBay? The actual reel to. The, I mean, there's got to be some collector out there that would pay a fortune for that. Right. I am. <laughs> He's looking. It's not where I thought it was. Well, that happens. But anyways, okay. yeah. So either way, yeah. Um, we did the the demo that had summertime goodbye round them up want trouble you got it that was that was early 88 we did another demo with warren croyle in the early part of 89 and we did that at sunset sound and mixed it at amigo and um that was good guys were black and center street and i do have actually right here this is what became of those sessions hmm this is decadation. Is that in? Is that in? Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Decadation. This is this is a vinyl, a limited edition vinyl I put out some years ago, and it's not side A and side B or side one and two, but it's side nineteen eighty eight. Oh, okay. Nineteen eighty nine. Nice. And what it has on here is the side nineteen eighty eight is the Sound City recordings. In sound nine side nineteen eighty nine is the Sound City recording or the the Sunset Sound recordings. Okay, and the photos these are from nineteen eighty nine with Niels Lozauer, the very famous photographer. Oh, nice! Um, yeah, those look really professional. Yeah this this was a great this was a great lease. I I had that. God, where did I put that reel? I have a shelf over here that's full. But anyways, so we did a couple of pro demos. Um, that came out really good. But I mean, you learn a lot when you go in the studio with, with somebody that's older, more experienced. There's, there's things that, that take place, you know, and you can see that when you work with young bands and they're going to record for the first time or, or even playing live and writing songs. And then by the time we got in with Howard, which was the fall of 90, we're now in pre-production and he's coming to rehearsal. And I remember one of the first things he did, he came in and he said, I want you guys to play me your 10 best songs and we're going to make a list. And he had, a, we had a, a, like a chalkboard in their studio hmm. and he, he's like, what is this one called? And we're like, uh, good guys were black, you know, and he'd write the title down one, play it for me. Okay. Play me another one. Number two, number three. And we went to the first 10 and then he said, okay, now I want you to play me your next best 10 songs. And we're like, okay. So we play him 10 more songs. Now it's list number two, one through 10. And he's just like, okay, now what I want you to do is play me your, your best ideas, like your working ideas, not a complete song, but do you have some cool riffs or a part? Play me those. So we went in there and at some point we played him our what we thought were our 10 best songs. And then a second list of another 10 songs and then another six or eight or 10 ideas. So at some point there was 30 pieces, wow. you know, songs, I, ideas, whatever. And at some point he started to whittle it down and saying, I like this. I like this. We're not doing that. Let's try this. And on this list, I like this and this, no way on that, no way on this, these ideas. I like this one and this one. Let's work hmm. on those. So Rucka Pit Bridge, for instance, that was just an idea. And it was a riff that George had been playing around with that kind of sounds like it's not love. 
by Dawkin, by George Lynch. That could, so we just called it the Dawkin idea. That's what <laughs> it was on the board. Okay. Um, and that's so, you know, you had the first 10, the second 10, and then the list of ideas. And the, the Dawkin idea became Rocket Pit Bridge, which not only made the record, but it's the, the, the you know, the opening track. Opening it's track, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember as we started working on the songs, now we've got the songs down. Like Howard's like, we're going to do these 10 songs. And then he said, the first, uh, the first day, we're about a week into it. He says, okay, I want you to play this song for me. And then he stood up and he went behind Michael's drum kit. And he just sat there and he watched Michael playing. Like he just watched Michael for like three minutes, just play the song. And then he basically said, okay, we're going to strip this down to this. Your kick pattern, I want you to do boom, 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 boom. That's your kick pattern. Make it steady, make it step, you know, make it steady. And so he basically went from like building a cake. There's that old saying, you got to make the cake solid before you can put frosting on it. If the cake falls apart, the frosting and all the decorations aren't going to look good. The cake's got to be solid first. Then you can put on the frosting. Once the frosting's nicely coated, now you can put the sprinkles and then put the candles and the decorations. And that's what you do with a song. You take the, 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 the drum pattern, the kick and the snare is got to be steady. Now we have the drums built. Now let's put some bass to it. Let's thicken up the, the rhythm layer with the drum. Now let's put the rhythm guitar with the bass and with the drum. And he like, he broke everything down in, in a really simplistic way, hmm. you know, where he was just like, don't play leads, don't sing vocals, don't play fills, play the solid bass drum, kick, snare, hat. Todd, play the rhythm. George, you play the rhythm. Like, let's sess it out so the song is solid. Now let's put this in here. Let's add this here and add mm. that. And so this was happening for weeks and weeks and weeks. Six weeks, well, not four, probably three or four weeks we did pre-production. But by the time we went to record, they did bass, bass, drum, bass and drums first and then rhythms. And so a couple of weeks in it, now we're going to start with lyrics and me singing. So I would bring Howard uh, a spiral of like, hey, here's the lyrics I have for this song. And I remember one day I brought him the song and he, he took a Sharpie and he just started crossing like everything out. <laughs> <laughs> like if there was 40 lines, he crossed Jeez. out 25 of them and he circled like five or six and said, I like this. I like this. I don't like this. This makes no sense. You've said this. So he is not like a hands-off producer. He is a hands-on producer. Oh, very. Okay. But you know, but at the same time he goes, go rewrite these, hmm. you know? And uh, the, the thing that stands out is we were working on all new generation. Mm-hmm. I came up with the idea to do the all new generation and it was kind of a, a ripoff of Billy Joel's uh, what's it called? We didn't start the fire mm -hmm. where he sings about like everything from Marilyn Monroe to ex presidents and all, all kinds of different celebrity names and famous people. So I was originally singing the all new generation and using different, there was all kinds of stuff in there like that. Yeah. And Howard was when he said, no, 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 let's, let's define this. Let's make it about music. Let's make it about the generations of music. Don't worry about Marilyn Monroe or 
President Kennedy or, you know, none of that matters or Ronald McDonald or Fonzie or whoever, whoever I had in there. And it was all over the place. He goes, no, no, you need to define this. Let's make it about music. Let's write these lyrics about the generations of music. Break it down that way. So then I went back to the drawing board and I said, okay, let me, let me break it down into generations like the fifties and the sixties, then the seventies and then the eighties. And so the fifties and the sixties ended up being Elvis Presley, Richie, Jerry, little Richard, buddy, Barry, um, you know, the Beatles had a hard day's night. Um, and then the, 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 the next was about the seventies. Um, the, who, the doors, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, and old Van Halen, Aerosmith told you walk this way. And then, then the eighties was Cooper Kiss, the Oz and Motley, Poison, Axel, John Bon Jovi, Skid Row is the youth gone wild. You know, right. but I mean, it didn't come off my tongue that quickly and that easily in the beginning. I'm yeah. like writing all kinds of bands down and who made sense and who were the big, the big, the big names in the, in the fifties and the sixties. And so little by little piecing it together, but Howard made us all better. He made me better. He taught me a lot of little things about writing and how to make lyrics work and how to make them tell a story and, and uh, learned a lot. Yeah. Learned a lot from him. No, that's cool. And so that, yeah, that album comes out. Um, and you I think you said it sold like a hundred thousand copies, which, which isn't bad for the time. Cause like you said, this is right around now the cusp Nirvana hits and things kind of start to slow down for you. So um, is this, and this is like Todd quits the band shortly thereafter grunge happens. Adam Hamilton, I had him on. He said that, um, you know, then this is kind of when he enters LA and he he's living with CC DeVille at that house. He said he saw you up there that that was kind of like, did you go up to CC DeVille's house a lot? That was like the party house back in the day. Yeah. And, and it's not like I was going there to party because what happened is my roommate, my roommate at the time, one of my roommates was a guy named, uh, Toy Stacy. Okay. Toy Stacy was the second, technically the third bassist in the Zeros. Mm. The Zeros were the purple haired guys. Mm. You know who the Zeros are? Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. You don't know who the Zeros are. <laughs> was this what? Kind, this was like a hair metal band. You don't know who the Zeros are? No. Okay. Well, you're going to learn something today, Chuck. No, I know. Uh, See, the I, Zeros I, I... were like the purple haired Ramones of Hollywood. Were they national though? Yeah, at some point they signed a deal with Restless and had a record come out called Four Three Two One The Zeros. Okay, I'll have to. Te- I'll, find, I'll definitely have to check that Purple-haired out. Purple-haired singer was Sammy Serious. Bass player was Danny Dangerous. Guitarist was Joe Normal, and the drummer was Mister Insane. Hmm. A lot of your a lot of your people listening right now they know who the Zeros are. Okay, you Google them, you'll see a lot of stuff. No, that's the thing is like I'm learning about a lot of this stuff like retroactively because I didn't get into right. it until like ninety ninety two. Yeah, and so you're, you're 10 or fifteen years younger than than the generation yeah. in, in general. So my roommate was Todd Toy Stacy, who was the second. He was the bass player that replaced Danny Dangerous, and he was mm-hmm. friends with a guy named. Um. I'm having a brain fart here. Robbie Kezzy, mm. uh, Robbie Roulette. Robbie Roulette was CeCe DeVille's personal assistant slash security guard. Mm. And, and I had known CeCe from, you know, the scene and me being in, you know, in, in, in Hollywood and all that. And so this was about the time that he was, he was still in poison, but he was about to be, I, I was hanging around there when he, he got ousted. So, yeah. um, and yeah, Adam, Adam got invited to go to play with, with CC. 
um, and then I ended up in Hollywood. And then at some point ended up in another band called Joey C. Jones and the Glory Hounds. Right. And, and, and toured with them. And they played some shows with us because I had known Joey since the Sweet Savage days and going full, 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 a few years forward. And we'll go back again in, in mid late 1995, we, we needed a drummer for a tour. And I ended up getting Adam Hamilton involved and he actually went and did a couple of months of dates with us. As that's our awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Adam's great. Yeah. So yeah, it's a tough kind of, you, you soldier on though. And you, and you do that. Um, like I said, the fist first or uh, AKA religious fix. I remember seeing like, the pictures in metal edge and going, this looks so cool. I finally was able to listen to it. And, um, and then also I, I remember reading about this in metal edge that I thought was so cool is what you, you reinvented yourself with the cheese heads with attitude thing. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah. so cool. I was like, so happy. Cause I always like was rooting for the, the genre. And so anybody that could do anything and, and reinvent themselves. And you did, you reinvented yourself. And like, I heard you talking about, you made, you made a lot of money off that, which is really cool. Right. And it was just well, like spoof songs is what it was, right? You did like right. the song like uh, Beck's Loser and you did like a spoof of that, but about, you know, Green Bay Packer stuff. Right. Well, and it's it's not like I was trying to reinvent myself. I just, I did this as a side project, yeah. you know, like I've been doing tough for the better part of a decade, you know? I mean, yeah. my, my run as a hair band singer was, you know, from 84, 85 until 95. And when, when tough ended at the end of 95, I just had this this idea. I was a big Packer fan, and I wanted to do um, something similar to what the Bears, the Chicago Bears fans had done, or the team had done when they won the Super Bowl in 1985. They did a thing called the Super Bowl Shuffle. Yeah, of course. It became kind of a, yeah. a big deal. You know, they yeah. won the Super Bowl, and at that point, they had Walter Payton, you know, world-famous running back. They had the, the quarterback. Jim McMahon with the sunglasses and the headbands. And then they had the big fat defensive guy named uh, William, the refrigerator Perry. So they had like a little bit of a gimmicky vibe going on with them. And they created this thing called the Super Bowl shuffle, which was kind of a rap song based on the fact that they were the champions. So I had this idea to do some kind of a green Bay Packers project and had a couple of buddies who are both from Wisconsin as well. And uh, we, you know, called ourselves cheese heads with attitude. And then everything we did with it, I, I wanted to do it to, to spoof on everything. So the band was called CWA, which is a play <laughs> on NWA. Sure. Yeah. You know, and then the album we put out was called straight out of Wisconsin. Sure. And we were a three piece like the beastie boys and, Everything we, you know, everything was based on not just the Packers, but Wisconsin. That was the thing. We we didn't just sing about the Packers. We sing we sang about being from Wisconsin, and everything was to do with cheese and bratwursts and drinking beer, and then all the funny city names like Oconomowoc and Kenosha and Ozaki and Nina Manasha and Kakana and Wawatosa and you know with the heavy accents and so. And then what we did is we took songs that were famous, like Weird Al had done, yeah, and rewrote the lyric about Wisconsin. So, and and the timing was just impeccable. You know, I basically came up with the idea in the fall of '96, recorded it in two days for nine hundred dollars. That's and, it. Yeah. Yeah, two because days. didn't you make two hundred thousand dollars in a month and a half? 
more than that, actually. <laughs> so nice. it was it was a nine hundred dollar two day recording session. Put the record out. Technically, it was an EP because it was five songs plus a spoken word intro. Um, like we took the Pledge of Allegiance and I rewrote it, and it's called the Wedge of Allegiance. <laughs> um, That's awesome. And uh, this was like when Brett Favre was at his peak. Yeah. You know? uh, and so. And then, you know, that year they won the Super Bowl. They won it Perfect. in February of 97. So the record came out in, in, in November around Thanksgiving. And by February, I had printed 45,000 copies of the record. So I, I went from printing 1,000 and selling out to another 1,000 to 5,000 to 10,000 to, to a 20,000 piece order all Man. within about, about eight weeks. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. And the, th- the thing that really helped though, aside from the fact that it was getting played on all the radio stations and we were appearing places and doing in stores and appearing on morning TV shows and morning radio shows, we had big distributors call me and contact me to buy. So like Handelman company is a major distributor that buys for big box stores, Walmart, Fleet Farm, Costco, uh, Target, Kmart. And they called me and at some point placed, their initial order was for 5,000 pieces out of the box. Dang. COD, one way. They pay me $35,000. I give them 5,000 CDs and they sell them. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and then this is also, and then a couple years later, this is when you start, finally start Metal Sludge. I didn't know, you know, after doing some research, I found out, the reason that you started it, this is fascinating. I did not know this. It was actually for about Jerry Miller, rest in peace. Yeah. But she's the one that kind of like lit a fire under you, I guess, in a way. Uh, but she made a comment about how you would, you know, needed to, to end. You were going to uh, put out your solo record. And she made some comment about you just need to give it up. And so you said, fuck yeah. it. I'm going to make this like website that's going to like basically troll Metal Edge. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and yeah, rest in peace to Jerry. She, she was great to us for many years, but it's, which is kind of surprising. Cause I thought she loved you guys. So the fact that she would say something well, bad is like kind yeah, of surprising, she, she did. but at some point, you know, it, here's the thing. I didn't, I didn't throw tomatoes at her door. I didn't mail her dog poop in the mail. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't go out to like, you know, make her life a living hell, but it was just, you know, the thing is this, I learned this as time went along. All the bands on the Sunset Strip, all of us were rivals. I mean, did we get along? Did we play together? Were we kind of friends? Yeah, but there was, there's was. there been more than a few times that some of these bands we grabbed each other by the jacket and wanted to fucking punch each other in the face, you know? I mean, Flyer Wars, we had some issues with Taz and, you know, just being competitive, it happens. Hmm. No different than Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. Only yeah. that was much fight higher up, you know, Vince wanting to fight Izzy and vice versa and Dave Mustaine and Meg Metallica going at each other. And, you know, there's, there's anger and jealousy and fighting. I came to realize years into this, the same thing happens on all levels. Producers aren't always that fond of each other. Or if you ask somebody behind closed doors, well, you know, I really don't like this. And I don't think that I can't believe he's getting this and I'm not. And it's the same thing with the magazines. Rip Magazine, Hit Parader Magazine, Metal Edge Magazine, all of them, all competitive, all kind of, 
didn't necessarily like the other person that much. Hmm. And I remember what happened is there was, there was a, um, I don't know if it was Nam or something else, but Rip had a booth. Lon Friend, you know who that is? Oh, yeah. Okay. Lon Friend, editor of Rip Magazine and Rockbeat, had a booth. Um, Andy Setcher was the, the editor of Hit Prater. Jerry Miller was the editor of Metal Edge. And we're at Nam, and we walk up, and Lon's got a booth. He's got a whole bunch of people there. Everyone's hanging around, blah, blah, blah. And he's got a dartboard, and it has a Metal Edge magazine. <laughs> And he's like, come on, Stevie, throw some darts. Come on, you got to throw that. I'm like, I'm not throwing any darts. He's like, come on, you got to do it. Everyone's doing it. And I picked up some darts and I threw them at the dartboard. Well, we now made a list. There was a list of people who all threw darts. It might even have been a picture of Jerry, I think. I'm not even sure. Mm. I know it was something to do with Metal Edge, but Lon kept track of all this. And then they went and they gave it to Jerry. And they said, all these people threw a dart at your magazine. And they, they were, she was fucking furious. She was so fucking mad. Wow. We just did it in, you know, in jest, you know, it was kind. Just That's like, kind of okay, fucked up to Juan to do that, though, to throw you under the bus like that. Well, it's not like he was just throwing me under the bus. I mean, I think everybody got thrown under the bus. But, you know, you're you're trying to appease one guy, but not yeah. piss off someone else. And at some point, I remember there was there was even the, you know, there was a little bit of a rivalry shall we shall we say between rip and, and and metal edge or between you know metal edge and hit parader and you know it, it did happen so but you know jerry was nice to us but i remember you mentioned fist first when fist first came out i bought advertisements in in metal edge magazine hmm. um i did a thing with another band that i worked with called the mistakes we bought a full color full page ad not cheap like a couple thousand dollars. Hmm. Um, and I want to say we ran it a couple times. We ran that in Metal Edge magazine so I could promote, hey, order the tough record through this P.O. box, blah, 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 blah. Because Fist First was an independent record on RLS Records. Right. My label. Not, not a distributed, you know, CMC or Deadline or Caroline or whoever. It was, it was my label. So I put that ad out. I also put it out in Hit Parader, right? Now, Hit Parader, as you may know or not may may or may not know, Hit Parader, Andy Setcher is one of the reasons we got signed. Because we were signed to Atlantic Titanium. Titanium was the subsidiary that signed us. Mm -hmm. Titanium was four partners. The partners are Andy Setcher, the editor of Hit Parader, Mitch Hersowitz, who was part of Hit Parader, Paul O'Neill, who was the producer of Sabotage and the guy who concepted TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and then a fourth partner named Sheldon, who was a silent partner. Those four guys are the reason we got our deal through Atlantic. Mm. So when I was trying to promote my new independent record, I went to Andy at Hit Parader, and I said, hey, what can you do for me? I want to advertise this. They gave me a great deal. So I ran my ad in Hit Parader. The whole reason I'm bringing this up, Jerry Miller contacted me and asked me why I advertised in Hit Prater. She was mad at me. Really? She was mad. So you're only supposed to advertise in Metal Edge? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, Jerry, I, I want to be in all the magazines. I want to be in your magazine. I right. want to be in Rip. I want to be in Rockbeat. I want to be in Hit Prater. I'm like, Andy, you know, Jerry did a lot for Tough. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know how much Andy did for Tough? 
And he was putting me in the magazine for years before we even before he even signed us because mm. he told me he intended to sign us. And that's part of the reason he was pushing us. Mm. So it's like Jerry got mad at me for supporting the very man and the very magazine that helped give us a record deal. Mm. And, you know, hey, again, I'm not trying to speak ill of her. She was very helpful to us and very nice. But at some point she wasn't she didn't always play fair. And so when she dissed me and she had dissed some other people and she kind of turned her backs on us, when the grunge thing really set in, 93, 94, it was almost like she just went, you know? Wow. So I was like, fuck you, you know? And and so, you know, a couple years later, she, she, she said a few things that got back to me. And at some point, that was the catalyst for me to start Metal, uh, metal Sludge. Yeah. And so what, how wonderful this was. I remember discovering that because it was with those things like if you were into that kind of music, you found the site because if you typed in, you know, it wasn't even Google back then. It was like Yahoo or Ask Jeeves or Netscape or whatever. You type in like Warrant or Skid Row or whatever, like your site was the one that would come up. And I remember going, what is this site? Because it was so like it had like a sense of humor and it was like adult oriented and it was funny. And right. I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And this is like the only place you can get new content about those kinds of bands. Well, that's because nobody was covering it, yeah. including, you know, metal edge didn't cover it for many years, no. except for the occasional rock never stops tour, which they would do some press release and say, Hey, these, these 30 dates are happening with poison warrant slaughter and quiet riot. And here's the dates. And here's a couple of pictures of the guys backstage and, this is what we heard and this is what's happening. But for the most part, Metal Edge also became Corn, Marilyn Manson, Power Man 5000. Right. Monster That's when I stopped kind of buying it. I think I just kind of yeah. lost and so touch. Metal Sludge came, you know, in September of 98 when the internet was new and, and me and my partner at the time, Sean, were just like, we, we love this kind of music. Obviously, I was very attached to it and we wanted to give the fans something to, to read about. And, and aside from just covering the stuff that everybody had heard about endlessly, everybody, you know, all those big magazines continued to cover at some point, Warren, Whitesnake, Winger, Poison, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, you know, Tesla, Cinderella. And we're like, you know, hey, no disrespect, but fuck all those guys. We want to talk about Rhino Bucket, Sleazebees, Slick Toxic, King of the Hill, kick tracy nitro you know like yeah all, all the stuff that was killer dwarfs you know like we wanted to talk about the obscure stuff helix dangerous toys bang tango danger danger yeah, yeah. yeah. you know so we we covered the, the 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 bottom of the d list and and not just a little blur but we 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 give a little bit more love to those guys mm-hmm. you know that was fun. And I remember like the penis chart. I remember seeing that. I still look at that and go, what the, like, how did you guys even get that information? Was it from, uh, from people sending stuff in? You know, it, it just, it just kind of became, it just, it just kind of organically evolved. Um, you're, you're 10, 15 years younger than me. I, I don't, I don't know exactly how old you are. Do you remember the column called Ann Landers? Yeah. Vaguely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're kind of young for that, but you know, and even, even when, like when I was a kid, meaning like 10, I remember my mom talking about it and like Ann Landers was like a, a columnist that would give advice. Mm-hmm. Like people would write to, I don't know, 
whatever the magazine was. It might even was it in the newspaper? Magazine. Pardon? I thought it was newspaper. No? Could have been a newspaper. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a circulated blog that yeah. people would write to this, Dear Ann Landers, mm-hmm. you know, my husband is doing this, my husband's doing that, yeah. and I'm not sure if I should go through divorce. And, advice. And so she would give advice, yeah. you know. And so at some point, Metal Sludge, we, would, we, would, we had a mailbag, you know. People would just naturally write us crazy shit. But sometimes we'd go like, hey, if you got you, you need advice, ask us a stupid question. We'll answer it. <laughs> and so at some point we did a few and then we asked a few people to help out. And at some point we contacted, uh, for instance, Ricky Rocket, who had been really supportive of the site. He was one of the first rock stars, next level rock stars who really supported us. And he was he was game to inter, uh, to interact and, and answer email. So. I don't remember if it was him or if it was us who came up with it. We came up with the idea to call him Dr. Rocket. Dear Dr. Rocket, <laughs> you know, and a lot of girls would write in and be, you know, tell their sexual problems and their boyfriend wasn't, you know, couldn't get a hard on or whatever. And then he'd write some really great response, <laughs> you know, and so we did the same thing with, you know, stupid columns that we had mailbags and people would ask questions and we'd reply with one of our fictional characters Um and at some point, girls just started writing all the time about meeting guys. Hmm. And at some point, we just started compiling it. We were like, oh, God, there's all these girls writing us about, you know, Jerry Dixon from Warrens, drunk and couldn't get a heart on. Like, we, we got to do something with it, you know? So we just we just started compiling all the details. And then at some point, we are like, we launched. The- Did they get pissed? Did any of them get pissed at you or send a cease and desist yeah, or anything? You know, some of the guys did. I mean, at some point, remember, a lot of this was anonymous. Right. For the first six years. Six years, years yeah. But at the same time, like what happened with Tough and all the hair bands in 1991, yes, we saw grunge was coming. And we realized it was affecting everybody. But I don't think none of nobody really knew to what extent it was really going to happen. The same thing with the Internet. Mm. In 1998, there wasn't a lot of dot coms. There wasn't a lot of emails. There wasn't a lot of Internet. There was, think of this, there was no social media at that time. Yeah, that's true. Zero. Metal Sludge was the first social media for for this kind of stuff. Because we had the chat rooms, mm-hmm. the chat rooms, we had the message board, you could email, you could write, you could send in reviews. Like it was kind of interactive. MySpace came along several years later. And if you can Google all that, at some point, YouTube came along years later, Facebook even later than that, Twitter after that, Instagram after that. None of that stuff existed. So when we were doing all this, we didn't really think of what the consequences could be, <laughs> you know, like somebody sent in nude photos of a few guys and like so-and-so backstage and he pulled his pants down. We're like, Hey, check it out. You know? And, it, and you put it on the site. Somebody, yeah. Somebody from bullet boys with their pants down. We're like, there it is. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> Fucking Hey, take a look. You know, like it was just, again, we didn't, we didn't know what the consequences could or would be. And, and we just, we just started printing stuff and, do you, did you ever feel guilty or do you ever feel like you crossed the line with an article or anything? Or I mean, picture? now, no, because it's almost, it's a quarter of a century later. I mean, if you think about it, it's yeah. 23 years into this. So, I mean, it's not like we ever printed something and then somebody ended up dead because of it, you know, 
I mean, we've we've been blaming Sebastian Bach has outright blamed me for his divorce, saying if it wasn't for Stevie Rochelle and Metal Sludge, I wouldn't I wouldn't be divorced, which I think that's nonsense because I didn't cause him to I didn't cause their divorce. You know, because why you posted a picture of him with another girl or something? No. Well, you know, we 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 did interviews with some porn stars and there was a couple of them who talked about meeting certain rock stars. And I believe Bach was mentioned in a couple that they said, yeah, I fucked him and he had a nice dick, but he was drunk and he wouldn't stop smoking pot. And, you know, he smelled like <laughs> fucking patchouli oil or whatever, you know, like, so, and, and I, I, as oh, much God. stuff as we did print over the years, a lot of times we would do interviews where other people would say something about somebody else. Okay. And it would be second and third hand information that would then be processed and put online. And then somebody's wife who's at home. And again, you have to think about where we were in, in the world 20 years ago when all those bands went on tour every summer, let's say the band lives in LA yeah, and they're married and they have two kids that are four and six years old. And now it's June. Hey, honey, I'm going on the Rock Never Stops tour. I'll call you every day and check in. So now said guitarist, bass player, singer, drummer from one of those bands is now in a tour bus. He's going to Tucson and Phoenix and Vegas and Denver and Salt Lake. And what's happening? I don't know. She's back in an apartment or a house in Sherman Oaks and taking care of four and five-year-old kids and wiping their ass and feeding them. At that point, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's no there's no cell phones with like, hey, guess what? I just took a picture of and FaceTime, and it would be a phone call at two in the morning. Oh, I'm really tired. The gig was long. God, so and so's our singer's a dick. I'm tired. Talk to you tomorrow. Click. And meanwhile, he's got some little bleach blonde whore in the bathroom. <laughs> gonna fuck. So the 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 women keeping track of their men, they couldn't do it that well in the 70s, 80s, or even 90s into the early 2000s. But in the last 10 or 15 years, now, if something happens at midnight and 10 people are filming it, anybody that's clicked on to Facebook Live, they they know about it at 12.01 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it definitely changed. It's 30 very... seconds ago. Like, right. There's the video. There's the guy. He fell off stage. He punched the guy. He's with that girl. He's walking in the hotel. He's at this restaurant. He's hugging her, whatever, you know, I mean, uh, and that's yeah. not just rock and roll. That's the whole world. Everything right. can be exposed really quickly. No. And I mean, the thing with your site is like, I mean, yeah, it started out as a joke and, you know, you had these like, you know, different names that you would use and stuff, but it's really like come to be like, you know, kind of like breaking news for a lot of stuff. Like recently Tony Katane died and you guys broke that story and people didn't want to believe it. And it was like, you were right. You were accurate. And you had the news before anyone else. And there's been a lot of stuff like that where you guys broke the story before anyone else. Yeah. Well, trust me, I, I don't want to be the guy that breaks that story, but we were. And, you know, I've seen even on TMZ, TMZ is essentially taking credit for it, saying they broke it. Their story didn't hit until 6.45 a.m. On, on Saturday the 8th. Our story was up at 7 p.m. on Friday the 7th. And um, some other industry personalities have also tried to take you know credit for it. Um, and it's not about taking credit for it, but give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, metal sludge also broke the story when Brian Howe of bad company died last spring. Um, metal sludge broke the story when 
Rat had fired Warren Martini. Rat, uh, Metal Sludge had broken the story to reveal who Rat's lineup was going to be when they played live for the first time in who knows how long with the new guitarist, the Ziff Kid and Sanders and, and Pete on drums. Um, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff over the years. We broke the story when DJ Ashba was added to Guns N' Roses as the new guitar player. And everybody was convinced we were crazy because how would Guns N' Roses put a guy that was in Beautiful Creatures in their band? It's just Beautiful Creatures with respect is, is down here. Mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses is up here. Right. You know, and, and, and so it just didn't seem realistic. But we were the ones to break that. We were the ones to break uh, a story when, when, when Steven Adler had to go into rehab and had to cancel all his shows. Uh, and this was after multiple other rehabs and tours that were being aligned. And uh, we broke some stories about Janie in and out of Warren a few times. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of big news in the world of, of, of rock and roll, especially the 80s. Uh, era of rock and roll because of your connections or because people send you stuff or both well it's it's a combination of all those things i mean okay. here's the thing i i didn't just start doing this a couple weeks ago uh-huh. you know i've been i've been in this business for over 35 years and 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 living here and being in this industry and being in the heart of it per se in, in los angeles southern california and you know the longer you do something like this the site's been online for for 23 years so when, when something crazy happens at this point, just asking you, if something crazy, like if somebody just texted you right now and said, oh my God, this and this and this, and it was something to do with 80s bands, providing we're not on the call right now, where's one of the first two or three places you're going to look to probably try to confirm that? Yeah, probably Metal Sludge or Blabbermouth yeah. or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what happens is when something like this does happen, and trust me, there's a lot of times when people leak stuff. And it's, it might be that they're leaking it to us on purpose. Um, mm. We, Metal Sludge, broke the story when Motley Crue was going to do their reunion. Do you remember the reunion tour commercial that hit VH1? And it was just all this noise and this loud crowd roaring and all the cameras. And then at the very end, the the, the, the crowd came into focus. And it was the girl's top just about to be lift up, <laughs> lifted up from the Home Sweet Home video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that clip that's in the home sweet home video? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the whole commercial ran for 27 or 28 seconds. And in the last two seconds, you know, the commercial was like, you've waited long enough. You know, and all this. And But there was no Motley Crue music. There was no logos, no words, no nothing. It was just all this motion and commotion and sound. And then the last two seconds, it was that little clip from home sweet home where that girl's top goes like this. And they're like, you know, this summer. We got that we got that commercial sent to us through an email mm. and we put it up and we said Motley Crue is doing a reunion, they're gonna go on tour, this, this, and the other. And of course, everyone said we were on high. That's on, right. I remember on, that. We were on yeah. crack. And that night at 10 or 11 o'clock, my phone rang and it was a 310 number. And I answered the phone and they said, Is this Stevie Rochelle? And I said, Yes, it is. Who is this? And she said, my name is Katie McNeil. I manage Motley Crue with 10th Street Management. And I said, okay. She goes, where did you get that video that's on your site? And I said, I have my sources. <laughs> and she's like, oh, shit. okay, I need you to take it down. I said, I'm not going to take it down. She goes, 
I'm asking you nicely. Can you please take the video down? And I said, no, I'm not going to take it down. I'm going to leave it. <laughs> and I said, let me ask you this. Where did you get my number from? And she goes, I have my sources. <laughs> and I said, okay. What the fuck? And she goes, Stevie, uh, are we at a standstill here? I says, Katie, I'm not taking it down. I said, I'm either going to look stupid and I'm wrong, or I, I got a, a good teaser here and I'm, I'm ahead of the game. She goes, nice. Okay. Then I, she goes, I'll reason with you. She goes, can I swap it out for a different one? And I said, and she goes, I want you to take that one down. I'll send you a different one to put up. I said, send me the other video and I'll swap it. Hmm. And she goes, okay. So she sent me a different video, almost the same thing. It was edited just a little bit different. And I swapped it out. Okay. And then the next day she called me and giggled. And she said, if you ever want tickets to a Motley Crue show, call me and I'll hook you up. So that, that awesome. summer, I had like a half a dozen of my friends in like Indiana and Texas and Atlanta. And uh, I call up Katie and I said, hey, I have a f- couple of friends that want to go to the show tonight in Chicago. And she goes, okay, no problem. She goes, give me the names. And um, my buddy calls me the next day. He goes, dude, I was like sixth row center. Like wow. literally like, you know, two arm lengths from Nikki's base the whole night. And I was like, okay, awesome. So, you know, like that kind of stuff, that, that kind of stuff happened more than a few times. Hmm. Um, and at the same time, I've had people that have been really cool. Another, another incident I had with 10th street management, I get an email from 10th street, which is Motley Cruise management. And they said, Hey man, I need you to do me a favor. Can you please call me? My name is so-and-so I work at 10th street. I said, okay. So I called the guy up and he got him on the, I got on the phone and he goes, you guys did a, did a story on Nikki and his new wife, Courtney, the, the new woman that he's married to that, that he's had a baby with. This is about three or four years ago. I said, yeah, what's up? He goes, you used a picture of her where she's got a see-through top and you can kind of see her tits. And I go, okay. He goes, can you take that down? Put a different photo up. And he goes, just do me a solid here. Let's, let's swap out the photo. He goes, if you ever need anything, let me know. I said, dude, done. I'll do it right now. He was so nice. That's awesome. Yeah. He didn't say like, listen, you fucking punk. We're going to sue the fuck out of you. He just said, Hey man, can you do me a solid? Can you take Nikki's, you know, new girlfriend off there with, you know, her boobs are kind of showing through. I said, dude, done. And I I swapped it out for a different photo of her, you know? So a lot of times I've had people like this call me, be really polite, be really cool. You know, you you get more, what do you, you get more love with honey than, salt or yeah but so okay so so then tell me what happened then uh real quick i I don't want to go into too much because you're probably sick of talking about it but the whole mitch lafon thing because i i I was hearing you talk about this in other interviews i I, you know i saw the obviously i saw the original story and then i saw you kind of had to change it um but i (laughs) i was trying to i was laughing so hard my girlfriend's like are you crying i'm like no i'm laughing this is just so funny is it true he called the he called the better business bureau on you (laughs) absolutely he absolutely did. What? I didn't even know that was a thing that you could like, what, why, what did you do? What law did you break? I, I didn't, you know, I just hurt his feelings, but you know, Hey, it is what it is. That, that whole thing is, is a year old Mitch, Mitch and I have known each other a long time. I've never personally met him. He, um, he, he challenged me in a way that I thought was unfair. Many times he said some things, 
uh, through the internet and online that weren't always putting metal sludge in good light or me. And I always tried to make it like, um, I don't know, I guess I was second rate to him. Um, hmm. And the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back was the Brian Howe thing, because we were the first ones to, to talk about that. And then at some point, you know, I, I've seen other people say stuff like even with the Tawny thing, well, there's no official statement from the family, right? There's no official this, there's no official that. And my, my, my reply to that is this. If you wait for the family to say something and then they hand out the statement via email or something, you're reporting the news. We're going to report that so-and-so said this Mm -hmm. metal sludge. In this case, we weren't reporting the news. We were breaking the news. Right. That's, that's very different. Difference. Yeah. Breaking the story, breaking, breaking news. That's, that's a term that's, that's big in media. Like we broke the story that Brian Howard passed away. We broke the story that Tawny Katane had passed away. We broke the story that Warren Demartini was fired from rat. We broke the story that this happened or that happened. We didn't just report the story because if you're reporting it, and everyone else is already, like people saying, well, it's not on Blabbermouth, so I don't know if I should believe it. And my reply to that is, I mean, Blabbermouth is a huge site. They're they're much bigger than Metal Sludge. They get a lot more action, a lot more hits. They cover a lot more territory. But why is it believable if it's on Blabbermouth, but it's not believable if it's on Metal Sludge? What yeah. is my track record that Metal Sludge has reported something that's not true? Mm-hmm. That's the thing is like, yeah, with the Tony Katane, I could see people, they were all saying like, this, this is fake. This, Eddie Trunk removed his tweet or whatever. And and I was like, I think it's going to be, end up being real. Cause so far, I mean, I've never seen you guys uh, report something that wasn't true. So I think as long as you report it as truthful, that's okay. Right. I mean, is, there's nothing against the law to report something if, if somebody doesn't want it out. Well, and it's like the, the fact that metal sludge does do some, Howard Stern-esque spoofy kind of stuff or some Saturday Night Live kind of spooky stuff, spoofy stuff. We make fun of stuff with some of my headlines are, you know, at some point could be looked at as maybe slighting the artist or me me being a little derogatory towards them. Um, I remember when Jerry Dixon's ex-wife, Susan Blue Ashley, was selling her wedding dress that she had married Jerry Dixon in. And she was selling this on social media about a year ago. You know, it was on Instagram, everything. Buy the wedding dress that I wore, blah, 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 blah. So I copied and pasted everything that she had wrote. But my headlines started out with, I don't. (laughs) Instead of, I do. (laughs) She got so fucking mad at me. But um. Obviously, because her and Jerry had since divorced and, you know, people say I do when they're getting married and obviously they got divorced. So I put I don't, you know, (laughs) Um, but sometimes one or two words or three words or those little catchphrases, those little headlines um, like Sebastian Bach was selling on eBay. He was selling some some items from his house like a like um, an armoire like a, a cabinet, like a wooden cabinet with shelves and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like from his kitchen or his living room. And he had it on eBay. And so like 
we and he was sharing it on his social media on Instagram. He was trying to get people to buy it. And so I picked up the article, picked up the 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 you know his post and made an article of it. And then the headline said firewood for sale, you know? And of course, Sebastian wasn't calling it firewood, but we called it firewood. <laughs> and you know, like one of the doors was broke, you know, it was just like so, you know, yeah. we've we've made a lot of goofy posts over the years, a lot of fun, a lot of stories that have shtick, but at the same time, we've also reported stuff that's very serious. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not making fun of the fact that Tawny died. Right. Yeah. We didn't make fun of the fact that, that Brian Howard died and never made fun of the fact that Janie Lane has died, you know? Uh, but because metal sludge had done so many stories on Janie for years where we goofed on him for having a mohawk or a wallet chain or the fact that he had publicly said he, he you know, he, he didn't want to play the cherry pie song anymore. And we kind of roasted him a little bit about that. Um, as did a lot of other places and people in sites and people online, but you know, many, many years later, I mean, tough, uh, tough metal sludge started in 98. Janie passed away at the end of 2011. Metal Sludge was around for almost 15 years before he passed away. And the stuff that we did a decade earlier, you know, then came full circle at some point once Janie died. I remember seeing stuff online where people said Metal Sludge killed Janie Lane. Or Stevie Rochelle was responsible for, for, for part of, you know, for Janie Lane dying because he was so depressed and his life was sad and he was drinking and, you know, Metal Sludge in some of their articles beat him up over time. And wow, I thought that I was, never heard that. Yeah. It, well, it's not like it's, it's not like it's a blabbermouth story, but just, you know, comments from people online and, huh. you know, social media comments, which those, those run the gamut, you know, people say all kinds of crazy stuff, but you know, the fact that we made fun of Janie back 15 years earlier had nothing to do with the fact that he then, you know, sadly passed away the, the way he did. Mm-hmm. And we've always been respectful of him and anybody that's passed away or had a serious, you know, health issue or matter that way. Yeah, no, I mean, but I, I enjoy it too. I mean, I, I think you got to be able to laugh at some of this stuff too and, and have a sense of humor about it. And I always thought it was kind of tongue in cheek. And so I've always enjoyed it. And then, like you said, yeah, like when you break a serious story, like Tony Katane, I mean, you didn't make fun of that, which you know, you're respectful. So I thought that was fine. So I just, it's weird that somebody would try to report you for bullying or call the better business bureau. Or, I mean, I don't know. It's just interesting. I, I didn't, I don't know what the rules are with that stuff, but it seems like a little extreme. Yeah. So, you know, going back to what I said about the magazines being competitive, having a rivalry in mm-hmm. uh, the bands, having a rivalry, it, it, it's the same thing with websites. I mean, I know, I know a lot of these guys I've, I've communicated with the guy from Blabbermouth. I communicate with Oliver from Sleaze Rocks. I know a couple of the guys at KNAC. I know, I know guys at a bunch of the sites <clears throat> and they know me and a lot of us share information. A lot of us share stories and hey if you if you cover my story i'll cover yours or can you help me push this and i'll push yours Hmm. and we've done that for years and there's always you know not everybody has the same agenda and sometimes there's a little bit of nah, not really cool you know but i think the thing with mitch is that he he felt 
I think he kind of at some points maybe felt left out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because he doesn't have a site. Um, you know, so-and-so's running Blabbermouth. I'm running Sludge, Oliver at Sleaze Rocks, you know, Tim at Bright Brave Words, Rob and the guys at KNAC. And a lot of us that communicate amongst each other are all the, the guys that own the sites or control it or run it. Mm-hmm. Mitch, Mitch was just a contributor here and there. He's he's a, a local guy in Montreal that interviews guys when they come to town, and he's uh, to try to do his own you know podcasts or video channels, and you know, and he's he's done well with it. I mean, he's obviously got a name for himself. He's he's he reached he reaches a lot of people. He knows a lot of people, especially in the Kiss camp. But he um, he was disingenuous to me on multiple occasions, as he was a lot of other people, um, and. At some point, I had to uh, pull his card, and I exposed him for all truths. And yeah. anybody listening, if you, if you ever question anything that I put up that's no longer there, I have it all. I screen captured and saved it all. Yeah, that was crazy. I just remember everything, everything yeah. that I reported. Mitch said, that's, "Yeah, that's no, I yeah, it was crazy. I read that, and I was like, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh god, like you really just like annihilated him. And then because like one of his things said something about like." let's go after blabbermouth and take them down or something. So you show yeah, them that like that multiple times, they're he, never going to more. Yeah. They'll never yeah, run his stories again though. Right. Few times to try to, to get me to kind of create some kind of like, Hey, let's do this. I, I've mm-hmm. never said that. I've never tried to like, Hey, let me take somebody else's site and ruin it or ruin their reputation. I've never thought that. Yeah. My site is, is my thing. My rip, my rep, my reputation is what it is. Mm-hmm. I've already, I've already created enough controversy. I don't need anyone else to try to ruin it for me. Okay. Yeah. I'm doing that on my own. So, but I'm responsible for myself. If yeah. I say something, I own it. Fair if enough. If I do yeah. something, I own it. If yeah. I'm, if I say I'm going to say something or do something or commit to something, I, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. No, I love it. I love a uh, metal sludge. So yeah, the new tough record is going to be out. And then are you doing a new uh, tales from the porn and a new shameless album as well shameless record is mostly recorded alex is beating me up right now because i still got to sing a couple more songs um it's technically the eighth studio record and i think overall it'll be i think the 11th release dang and uh, the first one we recorded in either 98 or 99 so there's going to be a new shameless record which will come out probably at the very end of this year or early next year and then uh, I would look to and hope that we're going to tour throughout Europe a couple of times, maybe in the spring, in the fall. Um, this was going to come out earlier, but because of everything that happened in 2020 with the pandemic, and then it kind of extended into this year, there was no sense in trying to rush it because everything is still really up in the air. Mm, yeah. Um, same applies with Tales from the Porn. Um, I spoke with Andy and you know a couple of the guys in Brazil. I'd love to make another record with them. Um, our first record was a project that kind of came out of nowhere and we kind of did it and it got a great reaction. People really liked yeah, it. Yeah, I like that one. And um, and now, yeah, the tough, the tough deal I signed with Rhino Warner uh, is officially uh, giving me the go-ahead to license and reissue the record. And it's already been remastered. The graphics have been put together. Basically, this you know it's in, it's in a manufacturing phase right now. Okay. So 
And then will you do some live shows, uh, either as Tough or a solo? Or how? No, we will definitely do more shows as Tough. It would be me and Todd. Okay. Todd Chase. Uh, Billy Morris is our guitar player, and Todd T. Burr would be our drummer. Okay. Uh, for the most part, if we play the West Coast. If we go further east, I'd probably use Jimmy Lord. Jimmy played with us during the Fist First and Religious Fix mm. years. And I've kind of used both of those guys because T lives in Arizona. He's huh. more West Coast. Jimmy lives uh, kind of Kentucky. He's more East Coast. Um, Billy Morris, who plays guitar with us, and he has done so for the better part of 15 years. As many people know, he played in Warrant for years. Yeah. And he was brought in by Janie because mm-hmm. they're both Ohio boys and they had a little bit of a friendship there. And even when Janie had left Warrant, Billy played with Janie solo. Um, but Billy's great. Um, him and Todd Chase live in Ohio and Cleveland. They have a food truck um, business that they've been doing for several years that's become pretty successful. So doing tough is, is still kind of a, a, a part full-time job for me. I do all tough things related, but as far as playing, there's just not a big enough demand for us to play a ton. Mm. But when we do get offered some of these cool events, whether it's Monsters of Rock or one of these big festivals, we try to put some dates around it. Um, cool. You know, Cat House Live, Hair Nation Live, M3, you know, these kind of rock festivals that always awesome draw a lot of people okay yeah worth it for us to be on yeah that'd be cool i've never seen you guys live obviously um i missed that uh you know era but um it would be fun to you know if you did one of these one-offs like a fest i've always wanted to do the monsters of rock cruise i've never done that you know one of those kinds of festival there's so many new ones popping up there's one in minnesota i think that's got like warrant and skid row and a bunch of cool bands we we played at that one before okay um, it's at a casino Casino, yeah minneapolis Mm -hmm. And I'm drawing a blank. It's called. Um, yeah, I forget, but I, I know I want to go this summer. Yeah. It'd be cool if you did something like that, but yeah, if you're in Phoenix, that's where I, that's where I live. So that'd be cool to see a show there. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I do like to end each episode with a charity or a nonprofit, uh, one that you support or that you want to give a shout out to. Is there anything that you've worked with in the past? Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's, um, there's an, uh, an autism charity that my friend Chris Wilson has put together in Florida. And if you go to metal sludge, there's some, some banner advertisements uh, in, in the right column of all articles that you can scan up and down. There's a bunch of article, a bunch of banners for, for different stuff, including um, there's two. One is there's a top of the page. There's a cookbook. Okay. It's yeah. Like rock stars, rock star recipes. If you go look at that right now, that's an autism, uh, charity. Yeah. I had him on Kenny. Yeah, exactly. Kenny, Kenny Wilkerson. Wilkerson. Yeah. Yeah. He, his, his, his autism, uh, charity is on metal sludge. We, we support that with banners and for people, uh, that want to support it and buy one of the cookbooks, the cookbooks have got recipes from different rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I it's like it. Enough and how he does his, I don't know, grilled cheese and soup. Right, yeah. You know, hot chase from such and such, so-and-so from Faster Pussycat, Ted Poley of Danger Danger. There's a, it's, it's basically a rock star recipe book, and it's got all kinds of cool um, recipes from guys in the bands. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, you know, with some of that money, it'll help support autism awareness, okay. as, as along with Chris's as well. <laughs> Both are found on Metal Sludge, if you scan okay. the banners. I'll put it in the show notes, too. So, awesome. Thanks so much, Stevie. Anything else you want to promote? 
that's it. I just, you know, if anybody wants to find out about me, they can Google Tough, Google Stevie Rochelle. I'm on all social media platforms. Toughcds.com is the official band site. Or you can go to metalsludge.com or metalsludge.tv, and there's a ton of related links there. Um, and if, for, for those who haven't read it or know about it, read the Tough Diaries. Yeah, I started, I'm about halfway through that. It's fascinating. Good stuff. The Tough Diaries is a 25-part series that I started, and it's all about me making my way from Wisconsin on a one-way plane ticket to, to L.A. to try to meet an audition for Tough which was in the spring of 1987. And then it takes you through the years, 87, 88, 89, 90, yeah. 91. It takes it's you through fun. all of it. There's tons of stuff on, as you've, if you've read part of it, you know, there's rock stars, porn stars, yeah. stars drug dealers. It's uncensored. It's very graphic and yeah, it's good stuff. But it's, it's, you know, and it's, it's my point of view about how things went down and, and, I, I never thought that it would get the reaction it did, but the reaction has been great. A lot mm -hmm. of people have said, dude, you're, you're a good writer, which I don't <laughs> usually, I don't remember hearing that too many times in my life, but yeah. you know, I've, I've had compliments on songs or lyrics, but as far as writing, um, people really like what they've read in the tough diary. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. Cool stuff. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Thanks, man. I'll be in touch. Thank you, Chuck Shoot. All right. I've Take watched, it easy. I'm a, I'm a fan of yours as well. I've watched many oh, that's of good. your episodes. And at some point I wanted to be honored. Here I am to promote the tough, what comes around, goes around. Yes. Remastered reissue on RLS records, courtesy of Rhino Entertainment Company and Warner Music Group by association with the original company, Atlantic Records. That's awesome. Very cool. It sounds amazing. And it's going to look even better. And for everybody, go to toughcds.com, order your vinyl, your CD, there's t-shirts, there's other related anniversary merchandise, 91 to 2021, the 30th anniversary of what comes around, goes around, and I can't wait for people to have it in their hands. Awesome. Very cool. I love it. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. Talk to you later. See you guys later. Okay. Bye-bye. Stevie Rochelle, singer of Tough, debut album is being re-released. Definitely check all that out. Make sure to follow Stevie on all social media. Definitely follow Metal Sludge to keep up to date with rock music news. They break a lot of the big stories as we've just discussed. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out some of my other interviews. Uh, a lot of the music we discussed has been covered. I've interviewed a lot of members of the bands of that genre, including Warrant, LA Guns, Trickster Firehouse, etc. So if you want to support the show, you can share, like, and comment on social media and YouTube. That helps me out. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. And remember to shoot for the moon.